This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 14, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 139 of Defender Radio. We in Canada may look upon Montana as the last vestige of the Wild West, and in many ways, it is. Ranchers, landowners' rights, and the old American West live on in the northern state. But not everyone wants to hold on to every bit of that tradition. Montana is filled with trappers and their cruel devices. Standing against them is Footloose Montana, a registered charity that is looking to end the reign of terror trappers leave in their wake. From hosting trap release seminars to beginning legal action, Footloose Montana is doing what they can to combat trapping. Joining us this week is the new executive director of Footloose Montana, Christopher Justice, who will share the group's visions of a trap-free Montana. Well, in terms of uh, Footloose Montana, uh, let's talk a bit about what the organization is and what you folks do. Um, so you're based in Montana and uh, you work against trapping. That's about the extent of my knowledge. So what more can you tell us? Well, Footloose Montana is a 501c3 nonprofit organization promoting trap-free public lands for people, pet, and wildlife. Um, largely what we're involved in right now is things like trap release workshops and making sure that we have a presence um, at fish, wildlife, and parks meetings and are basically providing uh, an alternative education to uh, what people would see maybe day-to-day in the media as far as uh, how trapping is perceived in Montana and just reminding people um, that trapping is something that's not sustainable, trapping is something that's not ethical, trapping is beyond fair chase. Um, And, uh, you know, also just in general trying to let people know, like, if there is trapping in your area, how you can protect your pets, how can you get your pets out of a trap? So we're doing a lot of broad educational strokes right now because we are in the in-between phase of getting uh, initiatives onto Montana's ballots for ending trapping on public lands. Well, that's terrific to hear. And I guess something that uh, I find curious, uh, again, as a Canadian and many people in Canada, uh, we look at Montana as sort of the last vestiges of the wild, wild west. Um, it, it comes across, you know, there's a lot of ranchers and there's a lot of open areas. Um, it is directly south of uh, Alberta, which for us is kind of the west, quote unquote. So what is it like in Montana? Is it all ranchers and people who want to trap animals? Is it Does it have the large urban centers that we do in Canada, uh, more akin to a Massachusetts or something, where there are rural areas and a lot of areas that are untouched, but still very strong urban cores? Uh, how do you describe Montana to outsiders? Well, um, I, I'm a native Montanan, but I actually have family in Alberta, too. Um and for Canadian frame of reference, there's similarities between Montana and Alberta. We have urban areas like Missoula, where we're based out of, um, and Bozeman and Great Falls, where there's a, there's, you have a sort of, it would, it would be hard pressed to call any town outside of Missoula in Montana liberal, but you have areas where you can draw in the anti-trapping thing from the, 
anti-trapping ethic from the liberal perspective. Um, Montana certainly is the fourth largest state in the union, and uh, I want to say the fourth least populated. Um, has uh, has an immense amount uh, of open wilderness, and it's something that it's something that we've all coded in one way or another into who we are. I, I, I think I, I, every Montanan who decides to stay in Montana for all the drawbacks, like the isolation and the cold weather and those kind of things, I believe do it because in one way or another, they have a connection to the land. Um, and everybody defines that differently. Right. Um, but there is a, I would say that Montana, if it's maintained, there's a lot of ranchers here, but there's just as many um, bicycling nonprofits. You know, I would say that if Montana maintained any vestige of its uh, wild, wild westness in its most pure form, it would be Montanans as a citizen's personal commitment to that wild west uh, ideology of freedom, um, which can be it can be both a help and a hindrance to a cause like ending trapping because uh, Montanans are are a hard-pressed group, more than any I've probably ever encountered, into wanting to turn something into a law as it as it opposes this uh, this sort of wide open spaces, big sky ideology that we've transposed over into the way we govern ourselves. Um, on the other hand, it it creates a it allows us to transcend those party lines as well. And we meet people from all walks of life and all political backgrounds who understand that land is a public trust and that animals on public land are in common trust. And that, uh, we see, you know, our, our opinion and the opinion of many of our constituents is that trapping on public lands violates the public trust by making hazards for us and for the animals uh, and for our pets and everything else that makes it so that equal access to, uh, our resources is denied. And as this wild, wild west sort of thing has changed into, even in my lifetime, and I'm very young compared to a lot of our, a lot of our major supporters, but even in my lifetime, the land base in Montana has been so divided and fractionalized into private property uh, that those issues have become much more palpable. I was at a fish, wildlife and parks meeting last night where um, they definitely even even they who are trying to broker a compromise acknowledge that it gets harder and harder to broker those kind of compromises because the land base that we all have access to and trust has become so divided. Okay, and I guess it, it it's probably similar, uh, but I have a feeling there may be more uh, agricultural interest. In Canada, we see a lot of trapping for two main reasons. One is the fur trade, which has been declining in recent years for us. And the other is, quote unquote, pest removal. Uh, it's used as a manner of attempting wildlife control. And you may note I said attempting very clearly there. Um, mm -hmm. And as anyone involved in this industry, you know that it does not control wildlife. But uh, so what what are the main drivers behind trapping in Montana that you've come across? Well, it's very interesting because when you sit down across the table from the trappers, um, which I wouldn't describe as always productive, but certainly always vocal, um, we're not unaware of where we stand, you know. Uh, it's certainly the same division. Uh, the legalese is always, of course, different. There's a um, there's a lot of discussion on their end of nuisance animals, you know, um, which is something that we've fought very hard against compromising on because we feel that nuisance animals is, is a, a much too, it takes the teeth out of any legal standing, you know. 
because who decides what a nuisance animal is? Um, I know Montanans uh, would, they would, I, I think that they would not like to focus on the economic side of trapping the trappers because uh, it's not as strong of an argument for them. But there's a lot, there's a, there's a healthy amount of Montana furs that are harvested and sold even out of state, sold even out to places that, that, uh, the, uh, the conservative side of it would, would not want to do business with like China. There's a huge amount of fur leaving Montana to China and, um, fur bearers are definitely still an industry. Um, now the trappers are, the trappers are good at what they do. And when they, a lot of the times when they have a trapper that they're going to put into an official administrative or speaking role, they'll make sure that that particular trapper um, is one who doesn't do commercial fur harvest and who is doing predatory prevention or nuisance animal abatement or any of the other, uh, the, any of the other uh, glossy terms that you want to apply to the prolonged torture of a wild animal. Um, yeah, we come across very similar circumstances here. Uh, I, I'm based in Southern Ontario out of Hamilton, uh, which is the, third or fourth largest city in the province and um we have trappers in this area and they i know they come from northern ontario or other areas they go up there and trap for fur but when they're down here they do nuisance removal and it's the exact same thing and the frightening reality is when they come into an urban area um and this is true in rural but i think it's more visceral in an urban area uh these are people uh many times who may be seeing snow for the first time in their lives let alone having an understanding that if you walk four feet off of a path, uh, you may step into a lake hole trap or a snare or a conibear. Um, and it's, uh, it, it is often frightening the realities, uh, that occur because of that. Um, now w- what kind of reactions are there in Montana for that kind of stuff? Um, I imagine, uh, much like it is for us, there is no central repository of data for, the number of animals trapped, uh, period. It's only the number of pelts harvested. So we have no idea definitively how many dogs, cats, non-target species, endangered species, and so on are done because it's self-reporting. And uh, we, of course, know that the trappers won't put themselves at risk by reporting all of that. Well, so, of course. And, uh, you know, um, Footloose has done a good job at trying to compile as many cases as they know. But we also we learn later on all too often uh, about a trapper who gets caught with, you know, dog carcasses or ones that weren't reported. Um, And you're right. I mean, in Montana, there's a lot of species that that I know from my own personal, and I know that that doesn't count as scientific data and I don't want anybody to think it does, but I know I observe species like coyote. I can see how their populations have changed in specific areas. And in Montana, you don't even have to report coyote. In fact, you don't even have to buy a license to trap coyote. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's the, 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 one of the ones that I always find somewhat amusing. My, my area of focus began with wildlife and coyotes. And the one thing that I constantly bring up and the scientists, we, we just did a, a an episode called the wolf effect, which explored some of this and coyotes when persecuted, like many other mess of predators, uh, have a, a spike in population. They breed more and they go farther because their social structure begins to break down mm-hmm. and you end up with more problems or more conflict situations as a result. And when you try and say that to a trapper, to someone in wildlife management, they, they just completely ignore you or they say, that's why we need to keep trapping. 
Uh, it, it is a remarkable redundancy that makes you want to just hit your head against the wall. Yeah, um, absolutely. And we have, again, similar situations with coyotes here, unfortunately. Um, so the, but you know what will make an interesting, what, what makes an interesting deregulation issue in like the state of Montana is that because they don't monitor coyote trapping and coyotes and wolves are obviously extremely different animals, but there are certain similarities in how you go about trapping them in areas, in the few areas of the state. And the story in Montana over the last few years has just been exponential deregulation of wolf harvest. Um, and it's based off, it's based off some horrifying fallacies um, that, that, you know, if the idea is if trappers are allowed to hunt X number of wolves, uh, and they only get a fraction of that. Well, then it's obvious that they didn't do the population control we needed them to. So next year, the the number is X to an exponent. You know, and it's a really it's it's a really horrifying and nebulous way to to manage your wildlife systems. And the other thing is, is if we don't have a law about coyote, well, you can argue that they're highly different species all day long, and I agree. But you can still use similar trapping strategies for coyotes. So in the few areas where they do say you can't trap wolf, there's nothing to stop the trapper from going in and setting a coyote trap, which of course snags incidental animals and and a whole other slew of things that they're not supposed to be trapping in the area. But that's just an acceptable blowback. For, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's uh, there was an interesting case in the eastern United States you may have seen, um, and I believe it was the Mexican wolf or the red wolf um, is listed as endangered in this particular state. And I, I apologize, I can't remember if it's South Carolina or somewhere else. Um, and they had found that the coyote hunters were actually killing these wolves because they look so similar. Um, and they ended up getting a legal injunction put in place ending coyote hunting in that area because of the risk it was putting on the endangered wolf. The curious thing, though, again, as you pointed out, and this is something we frequently bring up, is a trap doesn't know the difference. A trap closes on whatever gets into it. And that's uh, another frightening reality. Um, and that kind of comes back, like, how do... How does your average person react if if you're in uh, Bozeman and you pick up the newspaper and someone's family dog was killed in a conibear? What kind of reaction are you getting from the people there? Because uh, up here we get probably the majority of it is shock and disgust that this is legal, and a small fraction of people, primarily hunters and trappers, more specifically trappers, who say, "Well, you shouldn't have had your dog off leash, or you shouldn't have done this, or you shouldn't have done that." They effectively just try and shift blame. So, what kind of reaction are you, do you get when these stories come out in Montana? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a tendency, and people love their animals here, you know, and I, it's a, it's a horrible thing to say because you, there's nothing good that comes out of an animal dying in a trap, but we certainly, uh, groups like us get a lot of traction off of those incidents because it does outrage people. Um, and trapping is a very out of sight, out of mind issue. There's a lot of people in Montana, and it's worth saying that it's not myself. I actually am a hunter. Um, and an angler, but I, I try to do it very ethically. And there's a lot of people in Montana that even oppose hunting and that they're constantly reminded of it because us hunters have, you know, we carry home our game in the back of a truck and that kind of thing. But 
trapping, they're, they're hidden traps. It's deregulated. They're not required to report as many things. There's tons of species they don't have to report on at all. The traps are hidden. The, and the fur bearers are smaller animals that are you know, going to be tossed inside the cab of a truck. There's just so much of a lesser visibility of it, even though they're harvesting hundreds of thousands of animals. And, um, and so it's those moments. It's, it's the pet and the trap or the, the camper and the trap uh, that, that are a lot more mileage for us as far as saying, look, this is what happens. And one thing that really surprised me when I joined the organization, because this is an issue that I've been passionate about a long, for a long time, but really what made me feel qualified to be the head of Footloose is not my expertise in trapping, even though I've gotten well-educated quickly, but my, my networking background and my fundraising background, because that's what we're going to need um, over the next few years. But so there was a, a few statistics that even shocked me um, coming into it, just as I was learning uh, about the background of the issues, including, I mean, I would have never guessed the number of reported dogs in traps. I mean, I would not, I wouldn't have guessed that in that, that, you know, if, if you would have asked me to ballpark the number of people who've reached out to Footloose in an average year or who have reached out to Fish, Wildlife, and Parks or have in general made their complaint public, I would have guessed it around 20. And I would have said that was unacceptable. And it's more like, a, you know, 100 high-profile cases and people who are actually getting involved in making a difference. And it's also amazing to me that the core supporters of Footloose uh, almost all of them are are opposed to this to this trap institution of trapping because of a personal story they've had of either encountering an animal and suffering or watching their pet die in a conibear trap and feeling helpless because they don't even know how to open one. Um, and I'm I have I have seen trapping before, um, but the ugly side of trapping, the photographs and the videos and the testimonials. That's something that I told myself when I was offered this job that I needed to, I needed to see and I needed to, I couldn't, it was going to happen whether or not I saw it or not. And so it was important for me to know the brutality of it. And it's just, it's one of the most sickening things I've ever seen. Anybody that wants to argue that trapping is fair chase or sportsmanship, I mean, can take it up with those stories because it's animal mutilation and it's torture and it's archaic. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control will humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. 
At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Christopher Justice, the new executive director of Footloose Montana. My background, as I said to you before we started chatting, is uh, uh, journalism. And I started out as a crime reporter. Uh, so I've been to accident scenes, crime scenes, and things like that. And I find it difficult uh, still to watch some of these videos that I have to watch and examine them um, and look at them and so on. Uh, because it is, it is truly brutal. Um, and I... I'm constantly shocked. Uh, we had a case, uh, a uh, coyote or coyote hybrid was caught near Algonquin Park, which is a, one of our largest parks in the country. And uh, it was found in a snare. And the estimates had put him there for three or four days based on the amount of scat and damage that was found in the spot. A woman came and rescued him, got him to a rehab facility, uh, or they ended up having to amputate a leg and so on. And uh, last I had heard, he is still recovering. Uh, this was several months ago. But what happened when that story broke and we got involved, obviously, was the trapping organization in the area said the trap was improperly placed because of snowfall and therefore should have killed the coyote slash wolf uh, within moments by slipping over its head. And they were more offended that someone thought to release this wolf. Now, this this animal had been there for three or four days. And that's something that I cannot comprehend the argument behind. Um, uh, as, you, as you likely know, we are not supporters of hunting, but... You, uh, as someone who does participate, will recognize at least when you hunt, you try and kill as quickly as possible with as little pain as possible. But in these traps, they can be there for days upon days upon days. Um, is that something that you find when you speak out to the, the larger community, including hunters and anglers? Is that something that people are uncomfortable with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, I think it's one of the strongest arguments is that uh, about the difference between hunting and, and trapping. And, you know, I have to say that I'm a hunter because I grew up on a ranching with the ranching family and I I grew up around agriculture and Hooterite colonies. And, um, it, it feels different to me because I've always learned to have, a reverence for my protein source. And if I'm going to be a meat eater, which is part of my worldview, that you owe an animal on an individual level for their sacrifice, you know? Um, and I really respect people who take the route of vegan vegetarianism because I, I feel like um, that animal, we do not have a primacy over animals, that humans 
have their place in the natural world and that humans are, are omnivores by nature, in my personal opinion. Now, that's obviously debatable too, but, um, but that we don't, it doesn't mean that we're at the top of the food chain in an ethical sense. And, you know, um, and I believe very much in fair chase. I believe in thanking an animal for its sacrifice if you are going to eat meat and being familiar with it. And I, you know, I also don't eat, don't eat beef that's sourced from a massive slaughterhouse because I think that quality of life is, is something that everything deserves. And so if you are, if you are even going to be one of those people who makes the decision um, to eat meat, you, you owe it to the universe, I guess, to, to behave in an ethical fashion and understand that something's making a sacrifice for you. And, you know, going out and shooting a horse and leaving it as bait and snaring five coyotes and going out and seeing the big pile of kill later where they're all hung up on snare posts and you can see the gnaw marks and limbs nod off. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of images that, that Geiger himself could not have created. It's, I, I, it's so horrifying and, uh, and it's suffering for economics. And I think that that's another thing that people don't understand is trappers will always try to come out and say, well, we're working on making traps more humane. And that's not for any trapper that's trapping for any sort of economic purpose. That's never going to be their prerogative because any trap that's going to be humane is going to have a higher chance of damaging a pelt and a damaged pelt is worthless to them. It's even more worthless to them than the animal that they've already categorized as worthless. So this whole argument that whenever the trappers come to the table and they say, well, let's compromise on more humane traps, that's never going to happen practically because it's, it's opposed to what they do. And, and these are people that have compartmentalized the suffering of animals into something economic and something acceptable. And I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in, luckily I'm in a position where I, where I don't have to speak politically about it when I say that I think that's sociopathy and I don't, I have an absolute 100% disconnect to it. And I, there's nothing in Montana. There's a very, especially as more in the last 20 years, especially as, as more out of staters and more foreigners have made their homes in Montana at an exponential rate, especially in the Bozeman area. There's been this, there's been this huge push for Montanans who are native Montanans to identify as native Montanans. Now, um, that's also sort of laughable when you think about how that, what that means to First Nations and Indigenous people. But well, it's slightly xenophobic as well, right? Um, and, and I'm not going to lie; uh, I'm not saying that I've been totally above being proud of my of my native Montana roots, just because it is what's caused the changes in the land that we're discussing, you know, for better or for worse, it's that population boom and that massive privatization of the land. So I, from that standpoint, I guess I can understand where people start to get there in the first place. But then the danger of it is that trappers, trappers roll that argument over to tradition. And they say, my family's been here for five generations trapping and and so I have a right to do it. So that's it's a funny one because in Canada we constantly are told about our heritage as trappers, which is true. This country was built on the back of fur-bearing animals. Um, our first industry upon contact was uh, trapping and harvesting of furs, primarily beavers, and 
the counter argument we simply employ is that we also were slavers at one time. Um, and we also destroyed an entire people's way of life at that time. Uh, just, just because that's who we were is absolutely no excuse to say that's who we are now. A hundred percent. And I, you know, um, the, the thing that's difficult about that argument is when you're trying to sway the moderate, um, who is ultimately got to be your goal because you're never, it's not, you're not going to sway enough trappers to your side to win the legislature. You know, when you're trying to sway the moderate people who don't, the, I'm very lucky that the core group of people that we have at Footloose um, all seem to not place humans in any sort of primacy over animals. But there are people that are that are primed to believe in our cause who still would put human rights over animal rights, whereas I look at animal rights as equal to human rights. I look at them as different, but I look at the, the basic tenets of animal rights as being inalienable. And so it makes it hard sometimes because people want to see that comparison as hyperbole. But I mean, what a, what a red herring. There's just no, uh, there's no reason. There's so many things that humans have evolved past doing and, and not, uh, not all of them are as, as bilious and horrible as slavery and the genocide of indigenous people. I mean, some of them are just, we don't use DDT anymore, even though it was effective at one point because we know the consequences now. And we now we know the consequence of over-harvest. We know the consequence, I mean, the Canadians played a role in the rebuilding of the, of the Red Lake Chippewa fisheries, which is an over-harvesting issue. And it, the buffalo in Montana, which is a success story that all these conservationists want to hold up as, as just their, their, um, just like a paramount example of conservation. Well, that was because people like the, the creators of the Pablo Allard herd in Montana at the turn of the century were working frantically at this Muir-esque preservationism to save a species that had been absolutely mutilated, decimated, destroyed, torture, and and just a total animal genocide committed on by people who said it's hunting as a tradition, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, it, it's funny too, when you look at the history of, of the buffalo as an example, because the uh, the American cavalry uh, went out and intentionally tried to kill as many as possible to solve the quote-unquote Indian problem. Um, and it's, when you look at the big picture of these things, that is often what starts to confound people. And the first step is always getting that, <clears throat> excuse me, getting that conversation going. Uh, for example, in Nova Scotia, which is uh, on our eastern coast, um, there have been a lot of stories lately about too many deer, about too many raccoons, about this, about that. <clears throat> and we did a little bit of reading and found out that over the last 10 years, more than 10,000 coyotes have been culled. Um, and this, I'm trying to put this into a relevant terms. Uh, Nova Scotia would be, uh, I think it's got a population, <clears throat> excuse me, the entire province of under a million people. Uh, it's a relatively small area. And they went out and killed thousands upon thousands of coyotes and this is almost a hundred years after they completely wiped wolves out and now they're complaining about these lower order animals 
um, being a problem. And, and we, we sent out a news release and we got a couple of callbacks on it. And they said, well, what, what do you mean we, sh- we shouldn't be hunting coyotes? And what, what's that have to do with this? It's like, didn't anyone take grade 10 biology? Like it all factors together. And that's something that's, uh, once people are willing to listen, it, it's pretty easy to show them how one action leads to 10 different consequences. And I'm guessing that might be part of how you're working towards some of this legal action. Uh, and now this is something that we don't really have the ability to do in Canada, and that's get a ballot item uh, uh, up for, for consideration. So can you explain a bit about what that process is and how it may help or influence trapping in Montana? Sure. So what we're hoping to do at the state level by 2016 is to get an initiative on the ballot that would completely outlaw trapping on public lands, which it's worth noting um, is only one third of Montana's land base. Um, Montana has a has a disproportionately high, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I think it's a wonderful thing, but compared to other states, has a disproportionately high amount of, of indigenous land um, and reservation land and private land. So that only covers about a third of our land base. And so, and we look at that as a compromise and, and the opponents look at that as a, as, as just an unacceptable overarching blanket uh, liberal response to tradition. But, um, we look at it as a huge compromise and um, basically the process for that, for our organization over the next two years um, in the short term, I'm working a lot on just getting people re-educated and reinformed because um, there's been a couple runs at getting it on the ballot before that have not qualified, but we know that we're very, very close. We need 30,000 signatures and we've come as close to only 1500 short before. And uh, the climate's just a lot more, a lot more, um, apt for um, Montanans on this issue right now. So that's why we're beginning a period of just hyperactivity again. Um, And what basically the process will be is in 2015, we'll start working on all of the legal language and support and organizing volunteer chapters of Footloose to get the word out and get people informed so that in the beginning of, uh, 2016, we start our signature gathering and can gather the signatures needed to get it on the ballot so that we'll have a vote in November 2016. And then Footloose doesn't go anywhere because undoubtedly within the day of a law like that hitting the books, there would be uh, a groundswell of litigation, Um, you know, and, and and then that, right. (laughs) Well, and then uh, of course, we would go back to uh, you would go back to an enforcement issue too. The fish, wildlife, and parks already um, are pretty. They are pretty reluctant to talk about issues of abating trapping because they don't want to alienate sportsmen. So there's a huge discussion of enforcement too. But of course, private methods of enforcement of those things become less clandestine. Um, when it's illegal because then the law is on your side that you're preventing something illegal from happening, you know? So, um, it'll be a very interesting road. I do believe that we'll make the ballot, but I believe that making the ballot, it would be the first time that that made the ballot. And then I believe beyond that, it would be, it will be an immense amount of effort to 
get people to get enough people out to the polls to to pass that law. When Colorado passed their trapping banning laws, um, they won it by basically they didn't they got um, no and that was it, it. It took two times on the ballot to pass and. They had got almost no support from the areas where trapping was in. They won almost entirely by um, urban area support, um, and, and I don't think I don't think that that's a strategy that will work for Montana because there's too much of Montana. Um, we have a, we're a very hybridized culture here. It's not in a lot of the areas. Um, like in Colorado, where I've spent an extensive amount of time too, there's a, a, a much more stark, stark division between um, urban culture and rural culture, whereas Montanans, like I said at the beginning, I, I believe in from my own personal experience, I remain in Montana um, because I want to have that connection to, to nature and to the environment. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't live in a very liberal city and harbor a lot of very liberal views and do a lot of city-like things like performing music and all that. And I just think that I think that we're going to have to get out into the small towns too. In the past, folks have tried to do these initiatives that focused on population centers, but I think there's a really vital vote to be won in the rural communities in Montana too. So that'll be interesting. Well, and I can tell you from my experience, uh, our organization actually has its roots in the 1930s, and we've been around uh, officially since 1953. And we are seeing a, a very interesting trend occurring as we, we start in a lot of more liberal communities, just, just like you've mentioned. Uh, some of our work is um, beaver, uh, beaver work, so we go in and provide solutions to protect beaver families in an area, whereas the regular response would simply be trapping. So we say, here's a way that you can keep the beavers here and you can mitigate all of those infrastructure concerns from flooding and tree loss. <clears throat> and we typically have seen a lot of success in more modern, forward-thinking cities. But we're seeing a lot now, too, from northern Ontario and parts of Alberta, which uh, are probably much more like Montana. And in Ontario, there is a massive divide between north and south, uh, particularly since Toronto ha has... Uh, about one-tenth of the entire country's population in it. Um, so one of the things we're finding now is these rural areas, it ends up coming down to the economics of they've been going out and getting uh, trappers for years and years and years and years and never seeing any resolution to their problems. One community we were in, I heard someone say that they spend $50,000 a year trying to manage beavers. And this is a small town, uh, that kind of money significant. So we can go in and for $500, give them a solution that lasts more than a decade. Um, and when we were able to sort of show it to them and show them that it works, all of a sudden it's wow. And then two other small towns. Is that, is that some sort of like beaver deceiver? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah beaver deceiver is the trademark version, but we, we build other versions of those as well. Uh, exclusion fences, flow devices, and so on. And it really does often seem to be that educational component. And that is so difficult sometimes. But once you get that conversation started, uh, it's remarkable what can happen. And that's something I saw in a recent story. I'm not sure if you followed this one at all. It's been going on for about two years now. Um, the uh, Lynx, Canada Lynx in uh, Montana is listed as endangered, I believe, or threatened. And there's a couple of conservation groups that have come out and said, 
that trapping is still going on and you're not doing enough to protect this habitat. And it's actually gone to the point where they've had to sue the government multiple times. And a judge has ordered Montana Fish and Wildlife to um, work faster on developing a plan. So it does seem that legal recourse is often the best way to get change happening in Montana. Is that part of the, the overall strategy you're using? Yeah, well, and, and you know, something you mentioned earlier about, you know, Americans loving their, their lawsuits. I mean, there is one thing that, that uh, litigation has sort of become a de facto part of the appeals process for those kind of things in Montana. And so, or not in Montana, in the United States, and, in the, and especially in the environmental sector, because there's always, that's just the next phase, you know? No one ever, there's enough money put into into what I would consider anti-environmental policy in America. So that's just a, a phase, but it seems like um, it's so expected that the one nice thing about litigation that I've seen in Montana over the years is once they see that there's a, uh, a, a litigative response to something like a law for trapping, if you can win that law, then it seems to have give Montana as a state a tendency to add a lot more teeth to their enforcement after they've seen it go through that almost like legitimizing process. So that's why I don't fear um, that stage of it, even though it's going to also be a lot of effort, you know. Yeah, um, so I guess it's going to be get the ballot pushed forward, get it through, and let the enforcement begin. And once there is some successful enforcement, they'll feel confident and put the the finance, I guess, behind enforcing it further. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And you have to remember that uh, the trappers, I mean, we talked earlier about how I feel like their motivations are largely economic. I mean, they have they have dollars. That's public information. And I, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm sure it is in Canada too, but in, in the United States, you can't, if you have a 501c3 status, all of your assets are public. And even even more nefarious nonprofits, um, are really careful to keep all that information public because it's the quickest way to lose that nonprofit status. It's so precious. So we're able to see where our opponents stand and they're very well funded. I would imagine that I would imagine that if they do decide, if we did get this law passed and they do decide to oppose it, that they're, uh, they're, you know, their, their blowback will not be weak. However, going back to what you said about education and, and outreach and those kind of things, uh, Footloose is currently involved in doing things like involved in installing uh, fever deceivers, and we have a Cadeau grant um, for doing trap release workshops and all those kind of things. And I feel like that if we continue, even if it takes a lot of a lot of uh, human effort and a lot of time and, and uh, my first gray hairs <laughs> um, to get it done, I feel like once we have that educational base, that there'll be a lot of people through every phase of this that are going to come and stand by our side and support us. And there's a lot already. We have, if I had to say the thing that I've been impressed the most with in my short time here so far, it's the, just the sheer number of passionate people who aren't getting paid, who come out of the woodworks, who show up at every event, who show up at every fish, wildlife, and parks meeting, who respond to everything I put on social media, who send me emails to check in every day, who who donate and don't expect anything in return. And those are the people that, uh, those are the silent heroes. You know, I'm, I'm here because I'm a good administrator and because uh, I'm, I don't need sleep. But it, it, it's the people who... Uh, 
who are the day-to-day contributors to Footloose and the people who are outraged enough by the things that we bring to them to go home. I mean, it's one thing for, for us to go teach a track release workshop. Um, it's quite another for somebody from that workshop to go home instead of being in that formal setting where you're automatically taught to be skeptical, uh, to go home to their family and sit down at the dinner table with two family friends over two while they're all eating and say, man, I had to go to this track relief workshop today for whatever reason, or I chose to go, um, or they came to our school or anything. And can you even know what's going on right in our backyard? And did you know that our pets are in danger? And did you know that, that there's all these species that we really value in Montana and that we just think, think of as eternal who are actually really threatened by these kind of institutions? And, uh, I think, you know, that is, that's, uh, that's the ounce for a pound right there, you know? Absolutely. And my final question for you is, what do you think is going to happen with Montana in the future? I mean, we, we all have our goals and our aspirations, but where do you see Montana in 10 years with all of this work that Footloose is doing? Realistically, 10 years from now, um, I guess I still have to speak um, from the perspective of hope because of the future is unwritten. Um, but I really see our 2016 initiative, whatever form it takes. And there's been some other groups that have tried to push forward these kinds of initiatives before that, that we're going to have to, to reconcile with and all become a united front. And it's going to be a lot of organization, but I have, I have high hopes for that, uh, for the, the law itself passing. Now, the energy of Footloose post that could go a lot of different directions. Obviously, our first thing is going to be dealing with with litigation and enforcement, which we've talked about enough. But um, I, I think Footloose's next step is to look at how, um, you know, look at how how trapping how trapping is a microcosm for all of the other issues of wildlife and resource management in Montana. Um, and I would imagine we, if we pass trapping on public land, that the public will decide whether or not the issue of outlawing trapping on all lands is something that we would want to pursue after that. It's not the goal right now. Um, and it's not really even, it, it, it would really all depend on what the feedback from the voter base was to us after that. Um, but I would hope that the people that are involved in Footloose, myself included, would just sort of retool our energies to saying, you know, if we get everything we want out of this trapping issue, where do we go next with rectifying the injustices in, in the way that Montana's public land is currently managed? Um, and that's, injustices is an odd term because uh, it's more just um, inequities. It's it's that entirely too much primacy is given to uh, trappers and to people who want to do. I I don't want to I don't want to plagiarize here. I just got out of a great um, meeting with a gentleman named Rocky who's been working with Footloose, who has done a lot of work on talking about giving more. Um, more primacy to non-consumptive land users. And uh, that really struck me. And like I said, I just feel like I really needed to give him credit for that idea. Because even though it might be something I thought of intuitively before, the way he, he phrased it when we spoke a couple hours ago, just talking about how 
um, environmental policy in the United States right now is really framed around being favorable to the consumptive user and that we really need to focus on being favorable to the non-consumptive user because those are the kind of practices that will make our, our wildlife and, and public land sustainable. I think that that is, that should be the broader champion for an, an organization like Footloose, you know? To learn more about Footloose Montana and their work, visit footloosemontana.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of Gates AAA Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.